The words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found once again in the book of Numbers. We're reading Numbers 14. Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If Yahweh delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against Yahweh and do not people the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of Yahweh appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to Yahweh, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, They have heard that have heard they that have heard they have heard that you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Yahweh, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it's because Yahweh was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in this wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then Yahweh said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I have, that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, 
I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares Yahweh, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land which I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked generation, congregation, who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land, died by plague before Yahweh. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that Yahweh has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of Yahweh, when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for Yahweh is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following Yahweh. Yahweh will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me once again. Father, we're familiar, most people in history are familiar with this story and how easy it is to shake our heads at the folly of Israel and, and not, not see our own folly. Lord, you know us. You search us. You know us, our every thought, our every word, and we pray that you would help us to see if there be any wrong way within us that we might turn and not be like the Israelites, but be more like Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua, that we would follow you fully. 
Lord, use your word to direct us to how you would like us to live and how we can best honor you as individuals and as a congregation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, uh, chapter 13 and chapter 14 actually go together as a unit. And last week we looked at chapter 13, which narrated the spies venture into the promised land. And the point of that spying venture, that scouting out, was to uh, whet their appetites, to get them eager to come into the land and to embrace all that God had promised them. However, in chapter 14, in verses 1 through 10, the majority of the spies actually give a bad report about the land. And the congregation believe what those ten spies say, and they disregard what Caleb and Joshua say about the land. And in fact, the people themselves rebel against God, it says in 14.4, declaring their desire to actually go back to Egypt, the place where they groaned and they cried out because they were slaves for 400 years. They're ready to go back. And we ended our study last week in verse 10, where the congregation decided that they were going to stone Caleb and Joshua because they were trying to get them to remain faithful to the covenant. And most likely, probably that included Moses and Aaron as well. When all of a sudden, probably when they began to pick up stones, the glory of God appeared amongst the congregation and they stopped. And then... The rest of this chapter presents the consequences for their rebellion against God. And so it's broken up really into four parts. Um, First, you have God's response to the people's sin in verses 11 through 12. Then Moses' response to God. Then the people's judgment, sorry, God's judgment on the people. And then finally, the people's response to God's judgment. Let's look, first of all, at God's response to the people's sin. In response to the people's rebellion, God identifies two problems that really led to their rebellion. And he issues, not only only does he clear those two problems, he issues two consequences for for their rebellion. Verse 11, And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. Make you a nation greater, mightier than they. So note that the root issue in their rebellion is their despising God through their unbelief. And that word Despise, that Hebrew word despise means to scorn or to reject, to cast away. It's the, it's the kind of, it, it describes the action if somebody were to bring you a bowl of soup and you saw a fly in it, you'd want to push it away from you. Or if somebody gave you moldy bread, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. Relationally, what this looks like, um, you could imagine a, that you were going to your boss and you were asking for a promotion and, and you were pleading with him and giving all the reasons why he should listen to you. And then you're rejected. Or you have a friend who's, who's about to make a bad decision, and you're pleading with them, no, do the right thing, and they just ignore what you're trying to tell them. That's what this word conveys. You Just scorn. It's rejected. Absolutely. And 
The reason they reject God's word is because of their unbelief. That, that Hebrew word to believe is aman, where we get the word amen, which that, that declaration means truly, absolutely, I believe it. Let it be so. So the Israelites are saying they don't believe God is trustworthy in their rebellion. That he's a lie. Right? And that's obvious because they continue to reject his word. And this is despite the fact that he has given numerous miracles to prove his trustworthiness. He has displayed his glory and his power in so many ways. He's provided for them in miraculous ways, water and bread and meat. But they still choose to reject him. They rebel because they don't believe him. So despite all the excuses they came up with for why they didn't want to enter the land, the people are too many. They're scary. The land will hurt our children. Despite all the excuses they came up with, this is actually the reason. They frankly, they just don't believe. So their core problem isn't an external problem. It's an internal problem. And we need to take heed of that because often we tend to think that all the problems in our life are mainly external. But truth be told, the reason we have so many external problems is because we have so many internal problems. That was certainly true of Israel here. And God issues two consequences for their rebellion. The first is that they would be stricken by pestilence. That word pestilence, it's used to describe diseases that primarily are given out of divine discipline. So almost every instance in the scripture when this word comes up, God is disciplining people or he's punishing people for their sin through disease. It's a very common uh, means of discipline to give a people over to some sort of disease. We saw that with Miriam a few chapters earlier. The second consequence is they are going to be disinherited. That word uh, usually translated is to dispossess. And ironically, when the word is used, most of the times in Scripture, it's referring to the Israelites dispossessing the Canaanites from their land. And so it's being reversed here, saying now Israel is going to be dispossessed of what they were supposed to receive. And instead of Israel receiving it, Only Moses and his descendants are going to receive it. That's what the Lord's saying. Why Moses? Why is he going to start over with Moses? Well, because as he said earlier, Moses is faithful in all my house. But Israel was not faithful because they didn't believe. So you have this contrast between those who believe, who are faithful, and those who do not believe. And we need to recognize what Moses is being offered here. He's not just being offered a medal of honor for his faithfulness. He's not just being given a promotion or being promised a, a mansion by the sea. He's being offered his own nation. And not just any nation, Yahweh's nation. In fact, he's even taking Abraham's place. In all of Scripture, there is no greater offer. 
In fact, all of history, there's no greater offer that's ever been presented to anybody. Except one. And that is the offer of salvation for anyone who would trust in Christ for their forgiveness of sins. But other than the salvation that's offered in Christ, this is the greatest opportunity that anybody has ever been offered. And so how does Moses respond to this? Well, the greatness of this offer is really followed by an equally great response. If you look at verse 12. Moses doesn't even consider the offer for a moment. I mean, just imagine that that you were offered the opportunity to become the CEO of some Fortune 500 company. Or even, I know as outlandish as it might seem, imagine being offered to become the president of the United States. I mean, in those instances, wouldn't you just sleep on it? And just take a few minutes, days, weeks, Get as much counsel as you can to weigh if you're going to take that offer. I mean, this is an immense offer. Moses doesn't give it a second thought. Why? It's because he's worried more about the reputation of God than his own ambition. And what a contrast. We've seen how the people are only obsessed with getting, filling their bellies, getting what they want. Even Aaron and Miriam are grumbling because they're not giving recognition, given recognition as being prophets. And they're grumbling against Moses. And here, Moses is given the greatest opportunity, and it's, it, it just doesn't even register. It shows that he, he really has no selfish ambition at all. And it's interesting that Moses brings up the Egyptian because the, the people themselves had just brought up Egypt when they said, let us go back to Egypt and pick for ourselves another leader. I mean, that's immensely offensive to Moses for all that he has done for them. But he brings up the Egyptians not out of self-pity, but with the concern that the Egyptians... If God kills the Israelites, disinherits them, the Egyptians will come to a wrong understanding about God. And notice also that he's concerned that the news will then spread from Egypt even to the Canaanites and then to other peoples. I mean, he cares more about what the other nations think than he does about his own personal interests. He's wholly consumed with people knowing God and seeing his glory. And this is a great example of what it really means to live for the glory of God. Right? 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul exhorts us, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, do everything for the glory of God. And as Christians, we love to talk about we do this for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria, right? That's one of the five solas of the Reformation. We do everything for the glory of God. This is what it really looks like. Not doing something for ourselves and then saying, oh, it's for God's glory. Notice me, notice me, but really it's for God's glory. But being wholly consumed that you're willing to let everything go so that people might know him rightly. 
To live for the glory of God means that in every opportunity we ask, not what do we want, but what will make God look more glorious? What will show that Jesus is the pearl of great price? He's a treasure hidden in the field that you would do anything to sell and let go of that you might have it and that others might know him. That we would count everything as loss compared to knowing him. How can we do that? That's that's what it means to live for the glory of God. How can I show that God is so great? I'm willing to let it all everything, every opportunity pass me by. If that means that God would be exalted. I mean, just think, how would Miriam and Aaron have responded to this offer? Given this, their previous complaint. Or even James and John. Who would be given thrones. Would they have said, no, no, (laughs) I don't want any of that. I mean, Moses' response is proof positive that Moses really was the humblest man on earth. And here's a man who was so settled in his convictions about the purpose and aim of his life. When given the greatest opportunity, it, it doesn't even warrant a second thought. And this is very similar to the mindset of the Apostle Paul. Acts 20. 23, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. Or like what John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. Or even the words of our Lord in the garden. Let this cup pass from me, Father, but yet not my will, but your will be done. I mean, if you want to know one way to pray for your pastor, this is it. I mean, I'm so struck by this example of Moses. I mean, you you can pray, God, do do Numbers 14 to Joseph and he'll know what you're talking about. To, to, to truly have no interest except for the glory of God. And our faith can be tested through trials or opportunities. Right? And our response to both opportunities or trials really shows what we truly believe and what we truly love. Good examples of this. C.T. Studd gave up a career as a professional athlete in order to become a missionary in China. William Borden gave up heir to um, a multi-million dollar business to be a missionary to Asia. Many of you know D. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave up the future as one of the top docs in England. He was the assistant to the, 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 the physician who handled all the royalty in England. He gave it up to become a missionary in Wales to a small village church because he couldn't get, he wasn't, he didn't have credentials to be given a church to pastor. So he minds a small church and just serves where he can. Trials and opportunities really show us what we really love. And it's just as Jesus even asked Peter, he asks us, do you 
really love me more than these? Moses rejects God's offer because he's worried that the Gentiles would come to the wrong conclusion about God. That's his big anxiety. That's his big fear. They will misunderstand you, God. Notice, therefore, that Moses' plea in verse 17, he pleads for God to demonstrate his power. The Gentiles are going to conclude that you didn't have enough power to bring your people into the land. So God, show your power. And notice how Moses asked God to show his power. This is amazing. The same way that God said he would demonstrate his glory in Exodus 34 following the golden calf incident. He shows his power and his glory by showing mercy and bringing judgment. And this, these two verses really are the centerpiece of the book of Numbers. This is the main point of the book of Numbers. Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Moses then pleads, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Again, recognize that in his prayer, what he's asking for, what he's seeking is God's glory. He wants God to be glorified, but he's also pleading for mercy on behalf of these people. And again, recall who he's praying for, what these people have just done. Not only have they spurned God, but they were getting ready to kill his friends and probably Moses himself. I mean, talk about turning the other cheek. I mean, this is stunning. This is what true godliness looks like, to love your enemies and to bless those who persecute you. I mean, Moses' response, his prayer here is like a bright spot in the midst of all this darkness, right? This whole chapter is about the consequences of sin. But then you just got this just glorious response of Moses that shows absolute selflessness, a love for the glory of God, so much so that he doesn't even think about himself when he pleads on behalf of these people. Moses is just a great example of how we should respond to sin around us. And the point of this wonderful description of God, his name really is twofold. First of all, it emphasizes that God is merciful, that he wants to forgive. God is eager to forgive sin. But guilty people will also bear their punishment. Again, it, it, it highlights the fact that he's eager to forgive sin. And that's, that's what mentions first. As Jesus said, all who will come to me, I will by no means cast out. As, as it says in Romans 10, all... All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Like, this is the point of the prodigal son story. God wants sinners to know that he wants to save sinners. He wants them to be restored to him. Anybody who wants to be forgiven for their sin, who is willing to be repent from their folly and come to him, he will accept immediately. 
He wants that to be crystal clear. But that reconciliation, that forgiveness doesn't mean that there will not be consequences for sin. As it says, he will by no means clear the guilty. God is merciful and forgiving, but this does not mean he erases sin's consequences. There's always consequences for sin. I think it's necessary for us uh, Christians to wrestle with this. How does that apply to us when we know we're in Christ? We're forgiven. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. For believers, Jesus has paid the full price of our sin. No more price needs to be paid for us to be reconciled to God. However, even though we've been permanently reconciled, there's no condemnation. This does not mean that there is no longer consequences. Right? Sin always has consequences. Just for an obvious case, we will all die. The wages of sin is death, right? Illnesses, whether it's physical or mental, often are consequence of sin. Ultimately, they are. Because it all comes from Adam in the fall. There's other consequences, financial consequences, relational consequences. Sin destroys relationships. It ruins our reputations. There are many consequences for sin. Just because God says he will forgive you doesn't mean that there will be a reversal of the consequences. Sometimes there is. Sometimes there's not. So that the truth that we are forgiven does not mean we won't face all the consequences of our sin. And this is clearly manifested in this passage in that God forgives the people. He says, I have pardoned them. They're forgiven, but they still will not enter the land and they will die in the wilderness. So they're forgiven. God does not break off his covenant with them. The covenant's secure, but there's still a consequence. And so that brings us to God's judgment. Beginning verse 20. And in this section, there's really three pronouncements of judgment made. The first is that he judges the people for their unbelief and disobedience. Look at verse 20. Yahweh said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh, none of the men who've seen my glory, my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. So this is this is amazing. He does part in Israel and he's not going to give uh, send pestilence upon them. He's not going to disinherit them, as he had said before Moses's pleading. He answers Moses's prayer. This, this, and we can say a lot about the power of prayer here. But I want to direct our attention to the fact that, again, even though he's forgiven them, there is still consequences. But before he issues these consequences that he's going to give them, he grounds the consequences in the certainty of their judgment. 
they definitely will not enter the land. And he says this by saying, as I live, as God lives. This is an awesome assurance because the name of God, Yahweh, it it itself means I am that I am. It refers to his self-existence. God has always existed. I mean, there is no greater assurance that can be offered. As God exists, so they will not ever enter the land. The second assurance is that he says, the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. This really goes back to Moses' concern that the nations will not see the glory of God. So he, he, he says this really for Moses' benefit. It's as if God is saying, hey, Moses, don't worry about my glory filling the earth. That's going to happen. But in my good time. The exaltation of my name is as certain as the judgment that my people will receive. And so God's judgment is rooted in what the people have seen and how they responded to what they understood. So this, this exalts the judgment of God. Notice that they saw God's glory and his signs in Egypt and in the wilderness. And based upon what they seen, they saw this is how they responded. They put to God, put God to the test these ten times. And secondly, they did not obey his voice and they despised him. Therefore, they won't see the land. So God means us to see his judgment is based upon what the people had, what had been revealed to the people. Right. God's judgment is based upon what people understand and then how they respond to what they understand. This is really the same point that Jesus makes in John nine. When he's having this conversation with the Pharisees, he says, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see your guilt remains. His point is the fact that you have You have the truth. You can see, but then you turn a blind eye away from it. You reject the truth. Because of that, your guilt will remain. God judges people based upon what they know to be true. Romans 1, right? We saw this a few weeks ago. Nobody has an excuse to not worship and glorify God because his eternal attributes and his glorious nature is revealed in all of creation. Now, not everything about God is revealed in creation, but enough for people to know that they should render their creator thanks. But instead, they reject him and they choose to worship idols. And so God gives them over to the foolishness of their hearts. Their lack of excuse and their judgment is due to their rejecting what they know to be true. And I think the most awful expression of this truth, that God's judgment is based upon what people, the truths that people receive, and what they do with them is, is, is Judas. Remember what he said in Mark fourteen twenty one. Jesus said, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Why? Why would he say that about Judas? It's because Judas, more than anybody else, had the opportunity to see his glory. Like the other eleven. The other 11 didn't fall away. Judas did. And why? He sold them out for 30 pieces of silver. 
because he knew what he was rejecting and what he rejected it for, Judas, it would have been better for him if he had never been born. God judges people based on how they respond to the truth. In Numbers 14, those who rejected the truth are then contrasted with Caleb. Verse 24, who has a different spirit and followed me fully. So he will, I will bring into the land into which he went and all his descendants shall possess it. So you see this, again, this contrast. Caleb had the truth, but because he believed the truth, he believed the truth about me and was acting according to truth, he's going to be blessed because he responded rightly. But those who responded wrongly, loss, judgment. So God ends his pronouncement by declaring they need to return to the wilderness because the Canaanites and the Amalekites dwell in the valleys. And that's significant because this is precisely the command that they're going to ignore at the end of the chapter. We'll get there momentarily. The second judgment he issues is a judgment upon their grumbling. The word grumble is used five times in this paragraph. God notes that he heard their grumbling, right? We've seen this emphasis throughout the book of Numbers. People do something, say something, grumble, complain. God hears. The point is God sees. God hears our words. He sees when we do something in error. And based upon what he hears here, he executes, he executes his judgment. And so the consequence for their grumbling about entering the land is that they're not going to enter the land. Instead, they're going to die in the wilderness. But their children will enter the land. The children get to. The very children who they said the land would devour. But even though the children will be allowed to enter the land, they too will have to pay the punishment of their parents' sin. They'll get the opportunity, but they're going to have to wait a long time and they will have to suffer with their parents in the wilderness. And this just elevates the reality that sin has repercussions upon multiple generations to the third and fourth generation, as we saw earlier in Numbers 14. Right? Sin doesn't just affect ourselves. It affects everyone around us. And even though, yeah, nobody may see, that doesn't mean that that sin isn't going to have a massive effect in your family. Remember when Achan sinned by taking some of the items that were under the ban in Joshua chapter 7? Nobody saw him. Just took it, buried it in his tent. 36 men died. Because of that. And not only those 36 men, but when they found out it was Achan who had sinned and he confessed to it, all of his children, all of his family died with him. They were stoned to death because of his sin. The point is, God will cause other people to, who are related to us, who are connected with us, to feel the consequences of our sin. Sin destroys and we need to recognize that. Don't lie to yourself. When you choose to sin, you're inviting destruction into your family and your friends, your neighbors, and even your nation. And the pronouncement of judgment ends with the immediate consequences that are meted out 
upon Israel's leaders. All the adult Israelites are going to die in the wilderness. But the ten leaders who led their brothers and sisters astray by giving a bad report, they are immediately killed by a plague. And what's the point of this? The point is, is, is to strike fear in the hearts of leaders. As Jesus said, you know, those who lead children astray by their teaching, it would be better for them if a millstone were tied around their neck and they were thrown into the heart of the sea. As James says in James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because teachers will incur a stricter judgment. The point is, if you say the Lord says thus and the Lord doesn't say thus, and that leads someone astray, God will deal with that person, that teacher. And that should be both a warning to us to make sure we're rightly handling the word of truth, but it should also be a comfort to us. Because if you've ever been deceived or lied to or manipulated by a person in spiritual leadership, know that that person will not get away with what they've done. God takes His word very seriously. And that consequence may not be immediate, but they will bear His judgment, His discipline. Consider what Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah says, what the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23. He says, Behold, I am against the prophets, declares Yahweh, who use their tongues and declare, declares Yahweh. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares Yahweh, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares Yahweh. And you hear that? That phrase declares Yahweh, declares Yahweh. God saying, that's what I'm declaring. I'm declaring that you're wrong and you will face judgment for mishandling truth. Saying I said something that I did not say. And that's for us to, to receive God takes taking up his name seriously. We need to handle his word carefully. But we should also be comforted knowing that when... People manipulate and deceive through the Word of God. We don't have to take vengeance into our own hands. He'll deal with them. The concludes with evidence of the people's false repentance. Verse 39. After hearing the Lord's judgment, it says they mourned greatly. But they finally do acknowledge their sin in verse 40. But the people's actions really show the shallowness of their confession. I mean, they're grieving. I mean, they're, they're weeping. They acknowledge they've sinned. I mean, you would believe them except for what they do next. They completely reject God's counsel. The sin that's called out is insolence or presumption is what it says in the ESV impudence 
deliberately they ignore God's instruction. It's, it's like sinning with a, a stiff neck, like an iron forehead. It doesn't matter what God does, they're going to run off into their filth. I mean, it exposes the true nature of their hearts. They're, they're still more dominated by their passions than they are by the truth. Because even when they had the promise, the assurance of God's presence, when they would go into the land, they were too scared to go in. But now when God says, don't go in there, I'm not going to be with you, they suddenly find courage to enter the land. He just shows it's not courage. It's foolishness. It's stubbornness. It's rebellion. And it only leads to destruction. Christians can fall to this temptation of presumption when we sin casually, when we just assume that, well, because I'm in Christ, this sin just isn't going to have any effect on me or my family or my friends. Now, I can look at porn and it's not going to affect my marriage at all. I can gossip or I can slander a person and it's not going to hurt their relationship, their reputation. I can yell at my children and crush their spirits, but hey, kids are resilient. They'll get over it. I can cheat on this assignment. I can lie. God understands my situation. It's okay to be deceptive. I'm in Christ. I'll be forgiven. I won't lose my salvation. We must remember Samuel's words to King Saul. According to God, rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption, which is what the Israelites are doing here, like iniquity and idolatry, to presume upon the grace and mercy of God in, a, in your sin is highly, highly, highly offensive. And we need to recognize that. When God said that he will not be with the Israelites, again, it's true. He didn't, he, he didn't mean he was going to abandon his covenant with them. He didn't abandon his covenant. What he meant is that he wasn't going to protect them. You want to go off on your way, own way? You're going to be in the flesh. There's going to be none of my power, none of my protection. You're on your own. Covenant remains, but you're in the flesh. And that's why they're wiped out like grasshoppers. And I think the same is true for us. When we choose to sin deliberately, we're not going to lose our salvation. It's secure in Christ. But we cut ourselves off from the favor of the Lord, the grace of God, the power of God, the peace of God, the fruit of the Spirit. No, we're not separated from God's love, but our experience of that, the power, the confidence, the joy that gets quenched until we repent and come to Him. As David says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Peter writes to, to husbands, husbands, love your wives, live your wives in an understanding way, or your prayers will be hindered. If you continue in unrepentant sin, you're cutting yourself off from all the spiritual blessings that are able to abound towards you. Like David speaks of this experience in Psalm 32. That's why we added it as a scripture reading. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So what do we do when we feel like we've cut ourselves off from the Lord's favor? Well, I think it's the same question that could be asked of the people of Israel. What should they have done when they heard of the consequence of their sin? They should have just admitted it and repented. They admitted it. They confessed it. They mourned it. But there was no repentance. But that's it. In fact, that's what David's teaching in Psalm 32. Notice what he says. Verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Immediate forgiveness. Immediate reconciliation after there was confession and a desire to repent. Verse 6. David says, Therefore... Let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. David's point is he's back. He's got all the power of God at his back. He's safe. He's strong. He's confident. All it took, confession and repentance. Right? And that's what the Lord wants us to see. There is grave consequences for sin. But for those who are in Christ, you won't lose your salvation. There will be consequences. But you can have an immediate assurance of His presence and His forgiveness and His love if you would just confess your sin, acknowledge it, and seek to be reconciled to Him. Let's pray. Lord, our confidence is that we are, our salvation is, is, is rooted wholly in Christ. It's not based upon our works. And yet, God, we realize, too, that our works, particularly our sinful deeds, do have consequences in our relationship with you, in our ability to serve you, in our love for you, and our love for one another. Lord, we feel so often the bitter consequences of sin. But we want to abound in the fruit of the Spirit. We don't want to walk in the flesh. But to walk in the Spirit to be characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Lord, all of it. We want to be pure Christians. And so I pray that you would help us to be Vigilant in our fight against sin. So that we would walk in all of the power and grace that you've caused to abound toward us in Christ. And we thank you. That our assurance isn't based on anything we do. But completely in the work of Christ alone. For without him, we would have no hope. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And how sweet then to, to be able to transition to celebration of the Lord's table. Right?